Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Councilor Lloyd Ferguson takes a jab at police oversight agencies as he leaves the Police Services Board. Should politicians be able to block people on social media? And what are the consequences of Hamilton being unable to determine where dispensaries set up shop this spring? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City Councilor Lloyd Ferguson is uh, not going to put his name up for uh, the Police Services Board when the City Council makes those decisions in just a couple of days. But uh, he's got some things to say about the process, and uh, we wanted to bring him on to talk about uh, the last four years when he's held that position. Lloyd, of course, is the uh, city councilor for Ancaster, recently re-elected, and he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. Give us a little background on your decision not to seek the uh, well the appointment to the board, first of all. Well, I struggled with it for quite a while. Uh, I enjoyed the work there. I enjoyed working with the senior command. I enjoyed making a difference, and I'll talk about that in a minute, some of the legacies I'll leave behind. Uh, but, um, you know, I had a conversation with my, I have three daughters, and uh, of course they lost their mom a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're very concerned about me looking after myself, and I, I keep, I don't know, I, I know your daughter's not in the 30s yet, but it's interesting, when they get to their 30s, they think the roles shift, and they look after me, I don't look after them, and uh, so they've been pushing me pretty hard to get some stress off my life. And, uh, you know, my brother ended up with a very serious stroke and is permanently disabled now as a result of that back in 2005. And so they've been pushing me a long while to just to um, step back a touch. Um, I'm never going to do nothing. My personality won't let it. Uh, my doctor says it would be more stressful for me to do nothing than to uh, be busy. But uh, let me so, ask you, on that point, though, let me ask you: Was was those, were those discussions that you had with your family a factor? Because you were hedging your bets as to whether or not you were even going to run for re-election a few months ago. Yeah, they were. No, no, yes, they were. I I've, um, I've struggled with that for a while too. I eventually decided to do it. Uh, there's some things I want to get done, uh, particularly in Ancaster with that art center. I didn't get that across the finish line yet. Uh, I want to do that. I want to get South Coast Road urbanized and. Uh, Quite frankly, uh, public works is interesting. I mean, so is the conservation authorities. You get older, nature seems more important to you. And I really enjoy the uh, the HCA. I've been on their board for the last four years, but I, I may want to take more of a leadership role in that. I'm going to give that some serious consideration as the committees roll out. But, yeah, it, it did have an impact on me. And, quite frankly, at the uh, uh, art center, that, uh, as I say, I've been working on for, well, it's almost five years now, a uh, very important new asset in Ancaster. I may not have run, but I did, and I'm very grateful for the people of Ancaster, now West Flamborough, to give me the privilege to be able to represent them again for the next four years. But, uh, you know, the second part, going back to the police, um, uh, five years is a long time, and I've been on that board for five years. I was put on in the previous term for uh, to replace Terry, who was on a suspension from uh, our friends at OCOPS again, and uh, from there I progressed to chair after Bernie passed away. And so I've had anywhere from, I don't know the exact dates, but four to five years now on the board and as chair, and which is a, a big responsibility, but I enjoy that responsibility. So the first reason was I just wanted to get a little stress off my life and appease my daughters that uh, I'm, I'm trying to do that because uh, they think I take on way too much. Uh, the second part is I think five years is, is long enough. 
um, to, to do that role. Um, someone else deserves that opportunity, and so I'm going to step back and let someone do that. All right. When you look back on these five years, uh, it's been a roller coaster. I mean, there have been some highs, but there have been some lows, and uh, it was rather tumultuous from time to time. Now that you are freed from the shackles of, uh, of the restrictions that uh, all these boards that we're going to talk about in a second uh, put on you, why? Why were things so crazy during this particular time? Well, uh, everybody looks over your shoulders on that board, and, and uh, we're muzzled from, from speaking out um, due to the rules in the Police Services Act, and particularly about something that's under investigation. And, of course, the poster child for me was uh, Constable Pfeiffer, who um, had a complaint filed against him by a, a former counselor, and he'll be a former counselor in uh, December 3rd, and the new counselor was sworn in. And so Office of the Independent Police Review Director... Um, um, was received the complaint, but they left that poor officer in a cloud, him and his family, and under suspicion for two years. And that was unconscionable in my mind. And and I got myself in pretty deep glue with, with uh, Ontario Civilian Police. Yeah, there's something you said on this show. On your show, or, uh, you know, I, I think I was pretty clear in your show. I says, I can't talk about the investigation because I'm muzzled from that. But I thought it was important. Uh, not enough people, in my view, have the frontline officers back. They're left out there all by themselves, and and uh, the police chief has to step back when these complaints are filed, and and the, the um, police review director engages. He can't do anything, so I thought it was critical, and I actually thought it through before I said it to you on air that I felt that officer was just doing his job, and it turns out that's exactly what was decided. Uh, once the decision came down, they said that uh, the complaint was not validated, and and. Uh, he was doing what he was supposed to do. He thought he saw someone that could be in distress and simply asked him, are you okay? And uh, I think it was important for me as a board chair, and I, I, now that I'm unshackled, as you say, I remember going to the hearing on that, and you're in the room with four lawyers, and, and um, they said, why did you do that? And, and I said, I thought it was important that the board chair have the, the frontline officers back. And, you know, they argued with me, that's not your job. He says, that's the job of their union. And, and so I put the question to him, are you a member of a union? And, and he didn't really answer me, but I believe he is because he's with the Attorney General's office. And I said, you know, I, I'm sure that if someone filed a complaint against you, that your union would step in behind you and hire you the legal support you need. But wouldn't you feel a lot better if your board chair supported you by saying you were just doing your job? And uh, he said no. And I told him, quite frankly, I didn't believe him. Um, and, and it's difficult now being a police officer. The, um, the new the provincial government, the former provincial government, took away the right to stop and talk to people. They have to, if they look, see a suspicious person now, and they walk up to them, and uh, the first thing they got to say to them is, you can walk away if you want to. Well, now the bad guys feel good about carrying guns again because they just walk away. Good, good people stop and talk to the officer. But it's the bad guys that we're trying to get collect identifiable information on in case there's something that happens. I've often said that if someone's walking down a street in Ancaster, a suspicious-looking person, and police officers are trained what to look for in a suspicious person, I fully expect that officer at 2.30 in the morning, somebody's carrying a crowbar, to stop and talk to him and ask him, what are you doing here? They can't do that now. Because uh, they've got to say, um, if you want to walk away, you can, and they do. Well, you pointed out that there's a, an acronym that that, uh, that is used in the street jargon, FIDO. Yeah, FIDO, forget it, drive on. And and, and uh, I was also very concerned with that, um, with, this, with Constable Pfeiffer, with that um, 
complaint being against them and taking so long, two years is ridiculous to adjudicate that, that other officers are, are thinking to themselves, no, the chief absolutely denies it because he has to. He can't say the, cop, the police officers aren't doing their job. But I'm saying subconsciously, they got to be thinking, I'm not going to stop and talk to this person because I could end up with the same complaint against me. So Fido kicks in, forget it, drive on. Well, let me ask you about that. From your five years' experience, Lloyd, there's, there's two elements to this. Uh, first of all, do these boards too easily suspend people for uh, complaints that are heard? I mean, is there an investigation before they make that move? And secondly, let's talk about the length of time, because the, the Pfeiffer incident is only one of many that you experienced as police board chair, where there were delays upon delays upon delays uh, about, about officers' behavior uh, in the line of duty, and it just seemed to take forever. And that, that's, that's bad for the families that are infected, it's bad for the officers, and for the officers' family, and certainly for the police service. Well, let's go to the uh, Levy Just Newest complaint, where it was alleged that uh, somebody said something in a, during a lunch break, that was offensive to a Polish person, and um, and and then it became very political because it got he went public with it, and uh, uh, and a couple of members of council tried to engage in it publicly. So the board decided, look, let's just send this off to Ontario Civilian Police Commission, let them adjudicate this. Well, they took eight months, and the thing turned into a gong show. And I said to myself, I'm never going to send nothing through to uh, OCOPS again. Uh, because it just takes so long, and at the end of the day, they didn't do anything anyway. <laughs> Nothing happened. But you know, and, and there were a couple of incidents where police discharged firearms and people were killed. Uh, how and and these 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 things seem to go on forever. Well, that's the SIU. Yeah. yeah. You know, as, as a board member, we don't engage with the SIU. They investigate uh, incidents in where police are involved and someone gets hurt. And uh, so, yeah, you know. You know, they, they eventually get to you, but they take an awful long time to get there. Therefore, these, these officers are, have had this black cloud over their head. And, and you know, I'm not alone in this. Uh, there was a, Justice Turlick who was uh, engaged by the government to review the, what's called the COI legislation, or Collection of Identifiable Information. And he was critical, too. He says all three oversight agencies take too long, but it's not fixed. And... Um, it's, it's frustrating. No, no, the previous government says they were going to do some modifications to the legislation. I don't think it's any better. It may even be worse. Well, what they did, they were ready to go with some amendments to the Police Services Act. For example, I know I'm going to switch gears on you a bit here, but they were going to fix the suspension without pay thing. And, and uh, so when, you know, we had an officer that was recently convicted, and it took six years to get it adjudicated, but in the meantime, he's collecting full salary. And, and Chief DeCare started this process that an officer should be, uh, the chief should be able on extenuating circumstances to suspend without pay and then get fully reinstated if, in fact, they're cleared. And um, so the, 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 the former government was prepared to move ahead with these amendments that the Police Services Act, but when the new one came in, they put the whole thing in a drawer. So uh, nothing's happening in that area yet. But... Um, let me ask you, because obviously there are going to be two new councillors on, on the Police Services Board now, because uh, Councillor Whitehead has also indicated that he uh, is not going to put his name up again. Uh, so whoever they are, they're probably going to say, look, at you know, Lloyd, you were there. Give me some advice on this. And, well, if they're smart, they will, because you know, always want to get advice and learn. Is the job of the Police Services Board to, as you say, have the backs of the police and support police services, or is it to be their critic? Well, it depends, you know. Clearly there's, there's, there's clearly a debate going on right now about that. Well, so if someone is taking money from a drug dealer to tip them off and they're going to raid, then they shouldn't have their back. But if someone stops to ask someone if they're okay, 
We should have their back. So it, it, the answer to that, Bill, is it depends. And But we're muzzled. We're not permitted to do that under the PSA for anything that's under investigation. And I, I get it. Uh, if there's a, a, a homicide somewhere in the city that, uh, in, in the Bosma, I'm going to keep going back to poster childs, but the Bosma was a poster child. There was a tragic situation where somebody's trying to sell their car and he gets murdered and leaves behind a young girl and a, and a lovely wife. And the media were all over us to get information on that, on that how it was progressing. But we absolutely uh, did not say a thing. But it all got rolled out at the trial, all in chronological order, all in very clearly laid it out what the investigation revealed. That it makes sense because you can't want you don't want the back bad guys or the defense lawyers to know what you're doing or what you're finding because they can they can go and cover up some evidence. So uh, something like that does need to be um, protected and and not released until the investigation is complete, and it will always get fully laid out and disclosed to the public either at an inquest or in a trial. But uh, these complaints, they're the ones that are taking so long. And, and, uh, and, and you know, so it muzzles the board. Uh, we, we can't speak about it. We can't speak about anything that's under review by these agencies. And, uh, but I did make that one mistake by saying on your show that, yeah, he was just doing his job, in my view, and, and I got a two-week suspension over it. There's a, 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 a the, the discussion that seems to be happening here, and, and again, this is probably highlighted by a number of the incidents that you've just brought up here, is there's a distrust in some circles here in this community for police services and for individual officers. Uh, how is this how's this police services board going to deal with that and try to improve that situation? Because there just seems to be a cloud over just about everything that goes on here. Well, because everybody's shooting at us, so you got a target on your back. I don't think we'll ever be able to get fully past that because of the rules and the Police Services Act, but we'll try. I think for the bulk of the public, do trust police. I think police, I've, I've learned, uh, earned, they've certainly earned my respect, having working this closely with them for five years. They really, most of them, or all of them, you know, the odd one goes astray, but they really try to uh, put public safety first and do what's right for the community. And, and uh, so I think for the most part, when I talk around the community, People say, boy, police got a tough job now uh, because of all these new rules that prohibits them from talking to people. And uh, so I'm not sure there's a difference. Clearly, the, the, the criminals don't trust us and don't like us, but that's okay. That's, we're in the business of making sure we get them off the street. So I'm not sure that's a, a very big problem. But, Bill, I want to take you back also. I want to tell you what. i got, I got about a minute left here. Okay, I'm going to quickly explain to you what I'm proud of that happened at, on Hamilton Police Service. Number one is we recruited a new chief, and uh, Eric and I got along wonderfully. And he's uh, he's firm like Denzel was, but he's a little more softer and gentler. But he's uh, I I've, I've met chiefs all over the province, and he's at least as good as, if not the best, in the in the province of Ontario. We recruited two new deputies, one went from an uh, internal uh, promotion, and so he had the knowledge of the force, and he's taken on the operational role and is doing an amazing job for us. We brought one in from Toronto with Frank, a deputy, and he was able to bring his experience for 30 years with the Toronto Police Force to us to help us make the right changes and how to respond to, to issues. Uh, we put in place, um, and, and by the way, both of those are very capable successors to Eric should he ever decide to retire, and that's important that a board have a succession plan and we have two people ready to go. On the, uh, we, we brought in a chief administrative officer because 
uh, I was observing that for the most part, and the board uh, observed this also, sworn officers are trained as public safety at all costs and as public safety first, as they should. But we brought a CIO in just to be pushing back the other way on, on, on some of the finance issues. And, and so this CAO, Anna Felice, now reports to the chief. Doesn't have to report through a superintendent and, or deputy. She reports directly to the chief. Plus, we have about 300 civilian employees on the force, and they're doing, uh, they, they need to have someone looking out for them, too. And so the CAO's job is to do that. We've invested the uh, $24 million, the largest capital project ever in the history of the force, in a new investigative services building. Our forensic facility was disgraceful. All right, I, at that point, i got to jump in because we're just about out of time here. Okay. Uh, a lot to be said here and, and a lot more, I guess, in the days and weeks ahead uh, as the, the council selects uh, the new members, of course, for this board. Lloyd, I want to thank you for the time that you've uh, given us today. Really appreciate it. Okay, talk to you later. Ancaster Council Lloyd Ferguson stepping down. Uh, not just as chairman, as a member of the Police Services Board, not seeking uh, reappointment to that body. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You engage with uh, politicians on social media, Twitter? You ever been blocked by one of them? Seems to be happening with more and more frequency, not just here in Hamilton, but this is becoming a, a national discussion and a national debate. And the, the obvious question is, should politicians be able to block people on social media? It's a popular platform, right? People have to share news, engage with citizens, etc., but uh, politicians seem to just think that, look, at, you know, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like how you're saying it, so you get blocked. Well, it's actually become a court battle in Ottawa, uh, and it's a situation that could have very, very strong ramifications for elected officials all over the place. Joining us to talk about this is David Fraser, a lawyer with uh, McInnes Cooper in Nova Scotia. They are the leading Internet technology and privacy lawyers. Uh, David, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, the, the obvious question is, uh, should politicians be able to block this? And I guess the the, uh, the situation with Mayor uh, Jim Watson in Ottawa is very instructive here. Absolutely. And, and it's, uh, it's certainly it's something that's uh, that's been controversial in a number of places. We have uh, in Halifax here uh, a member of uh, city council, municipal council, who's blocked quite a few people. That In fact, has created his own hashtag, Blocked by Whitman. Uh, and uh, there's been a fair amount of discussion about whether or not this is appropriate. And it certainly... It engages freedom of expression under the under the charter, because if you block somebody on Twitter, uh, that person who's who uh, the, the blocked person cannot follow you, and cannot tag that person in posts, cannot participate in many conversations, and so the question comes down to whether the charter applies, because the charter only applies to government actors or public actors, and so is the account a personal account, which is what Jim Watson initially claimed before this whole thing was settled, uh, or is it in fact an official vehicle through which uh, important public policy announcements are made or discussions take place. And governments can't simply block people from participating in important discussions about public policy. But the, the private public thing is rather interesting. Uh, I, I remember the story when it broke a few weeks ago, and Mayor Watson's, as you mentioned, defense was, no, this is my private account. But if you're using it to, to talk about your public job, does that not make it public? In my view, it would. And, and so I think that the line is relatively bright. If you use it for only posting pictures of your cat or your dog or the muffin you had for breakfast, that's fine. But if you start using it to engage with the public on, on kind of public business, uh, then it needs to be treated in, in that way. Or the person needs to kind of stop using it in that way. But as soon as that line is crossed, at least to, to me, uh, the charter is engaged and you can't be shutting people out of the conversation. And, and as such then, uh, is it, a, a, I guess it's not a duty, but a responsibility of that elected official to allow anyone and everyone who wants to comment to comment? 
And I think that's, that's the simple reality, and that's the reality of social media. Certainly this is not a question we had to deal with 15 years ago uh, when communication between politicians and citizens was through more traditional news media. Uh, so this has obviously introduced a level of complexity, and it's gotten even more complicated because many of these accounts would have been created by these politicians before they were politicians. And so they certainly were, uh, at that point, completely personal accounts, or they were campaign accounts, and now they're effectively official accounts. And I, I, I am sympathetic that certainly often the discussion is not civil, um, but we've also seen uh, these things happen on official government uh, Facebook pages and other things like that. There's an individual who's an activist for airline passengers' rights uh, who has been blocked by Transport Canada from a number of their social media platforms. Um, and they've said that it's because he's been saying things that are untrue or defamatory um, on their face, they, at least they seem to me related to uh, important public policy discussions, and it's inappropriate for them to, to exclude uh, that person from the conversation. Well, that's the thing that I, I think a lot of people are concerned about at this stage is is when this this action of blocking somebody has happened. It's it's the individual. It's uh, in other words, if I block somebody, I'm the one that's making the value judgment as to whether or not what they're saying is offensive. Well, that's right, and, and but you're also having spillover effects. So you could mute somebody on on Twitter, for example, so that you, as the account holder, don't see what that other person does or says in relation to your account. So you don't get the notifications and things like that. That's fine. There's, you don't have, politicians don't have a legal obligation under the Charter to listen to what everybody says, but they do have a legal obligation to not shut people up. I, I mean, as you say, with old technology, it would, uh, for the elected official, it would be as simple as say, I'm not going to return that phone call. I don't want to engage in that person. But uh, with the social media, the advent of social media, I guess that, that gate's wide open now. That's right. It, it has the effect, uh, it, at least in, in principle, of, for example, removing somebody from a public meeting uh, because you don't like what they say, and that's not appropriate. So are there guidelines? I mean, the, the problem we seem to have with an awful lot of the usage or maybe abuse of social media is, is there doesn't seem to be any guidelines. There doesn't seem much of protocol. You kind of make it up as you go along. Well, that's right, and, and, and we don't, I actually was disappointed that the case in Ottawa settled because I was very much looking forward to a court having to grapple with that issue and, and perhaps define the, what, the, what the parameters, in fact, look like. We, I'm, a, I'm an instructor at Dalhousie Law School, the Schulich School of Law at, at Dalhousie University, and in the, uh, this was a, a case that was uh, done as, uh, through, uh, for a mooting competition, and uh, there were some interesting arguments that were created by the students on both sides of the issues. And ultimately, it's not going to be resolved until it gets in front of a, in front of a judge, which is also an expensive, laborious process. But uh, certainly, I think that uh, politicians, when they enter office, should be given some guidance, uh, some well-informed guidance on what they should be doing with, uh, with social media, not just with respect to best practices and, and not doing ridiculous things, uh, like have been alleged about one particular Tory politician recently, uh, but also on, on how to engage and how not to violate the charter rights of, uh, of individuals who are looking to engage with them on the, on the platform. Yeah, that, uh, that obviously the discussion happened last week after the, the revelations about Tony Clement, you, it, but it is, it's, it's, it's basically you're on your own. I mean, you, you make up your own rules, you're the elected official. Uh, you'd think that somebody would sit down with people. I don't care how long they've been doing this, and simply say you're you're an elected official now. You've got a responsibility. We always talk about elected officials to be held to a higher standard. Uh, they have to be doing that on social media as well. Well, and I think that the one thing that's that's important to to bear in mind is so when you have the official, for example, government department Twitter accounts, it's been at least reported the the amount of consultation that takes place and how many drafts these things go through. So they're very very controlled. 
but if you hand a politician like Donald Trump or anybody else uh, a smartphone with their own Twitter account, they're essentially unsupervised, uh, and uh, and tweets can go out with with significant repercussions. And you got to figure, though, as you mentioned, this Ottawa trial never actually did happen. They settled out of court. Mayor Watson decided to unblock them and, as you say, just mute them instead. And that seemed to satisfy the complainants at that time. But there seems to be an inevitability here, David, that this is going to go to court at some point because somebody's going to say that's not good enough. Oh, I think so. And, and certainly I, I think that, that there are a whole bunch of other politicians out there who have blocked constituents. Uh, who might be emboldened by this action taken by the, these individuals in Ottawa? Uh, so they might press their uh, their cases within the within the courts, and it will be very interesting to follow. And and what would the ramifications be? I mean, the court can if there is a charter violation here, uh, does that set a precedent? Does that force uh, municipalities, for instance, if we're talking about local politicians, to actually adhere to a set a set of guidelines? Uh, it would. So the court would determine first and foremost what would be the criteria to use to determine whether or not a, a politician's account is a personal account or whether it's uh, whether it's an official account or is being used for for official business. And knowing where that line is would be very helpful. And, and so any court in in Canada that that comes to that decision would be perhaps not controlling in the rest of Canada, but it would be very authoritative. And then the, the the next question would be: Does it in fact violate freedom of expression rights of the individuals who are who are blocked? Uh, and if the answer to that is yes, and, and then then the, the question would be, what is the remedy? And at least under the charter, for charter remedies, courts are given a fair amount of latitude, and it would likely be in order to uh, unblock those uh, those individuals and to not block uh, people from those uh, those accounts. And certainly, that defining where those lines are would be very helpful, and uh, and would hopefully lead to a whole bunch of unblocking by politicians, or would lead to politicians you know, getting off uh, getting off social media, not using it in that way, which would be unfortunate. So. As I said, 15, 20 years ago, all communications were extremely controlled and went through the PR department or the communications department. Now there's a much greater possibility of individual citizens actually having regular contact and meaningful contact with their, with their politicians. And so I think there's been a great benefit from, from social media. And I would hope that, uh, that, the, uh, that the response would not be for politicians to, to leave social media simply because it is such a great way of, of engaging uh, for for constituents to engage with politicians, but also for politicians to engage with constituents. Now, it can be a very effective tool. You're, you're absolutely right. I don't think politicians are ever going to abandon that. But if that ruling ever did come down, and, and it just might at some point, that's going to lead to a number of other discussions as well. It's not just a matter of blocking or unblocking, but then, of course, you have to set parameters. Uh, what language is deemed to be offensive? Do you use the same standard that you do in print media do, or uh, any other thing? I mean, you know, if a constituent calls a politician an idiot, is, is that offensive? Probably is to the politician, but in the broad sense I'm not so sure well and certainly the politicians should show some restraint in, in responding back when yeah when, when called it when called an idiot and it, it, it would also bring up kind of whether or not the official languages act is engaged if you're talking about a federal politician um, certainly most uh, most cabinet ministers that I follow on Twitter they, they tweet bilingually um, and so there's obviously some process that uh, that goes on in order to make sure that the uh, that the other official language is tweeted uh, pretty shortly thereafter I, I don't think all of them have the uh, the, 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 the same uh, kind of translation skills. So there's somebody in the background uh, reviewing that tweet, translating it, and, and reposting it. That's, uh, I, I can just see now, <laughs> they're going to have the debate now about expanding uh, councillors' budgets or MPs' budgets now because you're going to have to have a social media manager uh, <laughs> It's going to have to filter everything that goes through the office, uh, which is part of the problem because there is no filter right now. And you're right, I mean, some of the uh, more 
po- I guess, popular, uh, for lack of a better expression, uh, examples of, of the abuse of this uh, have been because uh, they've become unhinged. And you're right, they get into a, a, a Twitter war with somebody, uh, the back and forth. You know, somebody gets called a name, and then you have to call that guy a name back, and all of a sudden you've got a problem. Uh, it's unbecoming conduct, obviously, for an elected official, but uh, it's uh, it's almost uh, th- th- intoxicating, I guess, uh, for some people, from what I hear anyway, when they get involved in those, that they can't stop themselves. Well, yeah, certainly it, it, I think it, it's difficult, and, and this is a phenomenon that exists across the Internet, not just for politicians, is that sometimes you, you lose sight of the fact that you're dealing with an, another human being at the other end of the device. You're, you're kind of just looking at a screen and not looking in somebody's eyes. And there's also a tendency for people to want to get the last word. Um, and so I think some of the some of the most restrained tweeters are some of the best tweeters that uh, that they'll make an announcement or they'll make a statement and then a conversation will ensue. But they're not going in there uh, and uh, and kind of micromanaging the conversation. Hopefully they're listening to the conversation that's uh, that's taking place. But uh, it's one of those things that if uh, if somebody says something bad about you, you just just kind of I guess virtually walk away. Well, there's uh, an expression that gets used an awful lot, I guess, when you want to end a debate. It's, okay, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. <laughs> I, I've never seen that on social media. <laughs> they said, no, no, keep it coming. Let's go. We want to yes. get down here. That is, that is in fact, relatively rare. So it, it's obviously it's, it's, it's something that's going to have to be controlled. You'd like to think, though, that, that municipalities or even individual politicians would be a little more proactive about this and, and maybe at least self-regulate and, and talk about you know, what they can and cannot do when it comes to blocking. Yeah, I would hope that there would be training and guidelines and, and not not heavy-handed management. I wouldn't want to have a situation where, for example, municipal politicians would have to go through the municipality's communications office in, in order to tweet. So that just takes us back to 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and so they, they do need to be able to, to engage in it in a meaningful way. And I, I appreciate the way that many of the, the politicians, particularly kind of local politicians around here, are active on Facebook and are active on Twitter and, and do engage in, in meaningful discussion, that, that they might shy away from some of the debate that gets uh, a little bit heated from time to time. But they're certainly in, engaged in discussion online. And if that had to go through some comms professional or PR professional, all that would become uh, laggy to begin with, because you'd, uh, you'd have to add on a significant amount of time, which ruins the spontaneity of the conversation, but it would also probably really water down the, the, the conversation and discussion that's taking place. So ultimately, while there's a much bigger debate going on about the role of social media and politics related to election interference and, and things like that and advertising targeting, uh, I think in this particular area of, of our discussion, it's ultimately a significant benefit uh, for citizens and politicians to be uh, to be much more closer, closely connected. Well, in many cases, that's the only way they can stay connected and get engaged in it. Is not everybody can go to a city hall meeting, for instance, and and have delegation status and have their five minutes worth, but they can just you know go on Twitter and and, and explain how they feel about whatever the issue might be. That's right, absolutely. Now, now there may be some disadvantage for for a, a number of people in our society who, for example, don't have ready access to the internet or don't have smartphones and things like that, th- those individuals may effectively be excluded from these uh, important conversations. But for at least those who have, who have the means to engage in the conversation, uh, I don't think that they should be excluded from it, even if they, even if they continually take contrary positions and, and might, uh, might hurt a politician's feelings now and then. Certainly, we, I think we have always had to expect that our politicians would have relatively thick skins uh, in order to enter the fray of politics. Yeah, well, we've seen many examples where that's not the case, and obviously, that's if they're going to do that training that you're talking about, that should be actually one of the chapters. Uh, <laughs> it, roll with the punches, because a lot of them just don't seem to have uh, the, the the sensitivity to to do that, and they just have to lash back out, and that's what starts a lot of these turtle wars. 
Absolutely. No, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely the case. David, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Anytime. You take care. You too. David Fraser, lawyer with the McInnes and Cooper in uh, Nova Scotia, uh, leading Internet technology and privacy lawyers. We have some examples of that right here in town. And, and uh, we've talked about some of the city councillors especially that uh, have uh, had some run-ins with constituents, shall we say, on social media uh, with some of the interactions. And uh, it's it, in some cases led to, well, possible legal action. Now, those things usually end up getting settled out of court. But you got to wonder uh, about the elected officials themselves and the politicians that, that engage in this. And, you know, this is something that's not going to change. They're never going to say to elected officials, you can't have social media, you can't go on Facebook, you can't go on Twitter. Because it's, it's, it's an effective tool, and it, could, and it should be a very effective tool. But obviously, you've got to check your emotions when you're gailing into this. And you only need to spend two minutes on Facebook or on social media, on Twitter, to understand that there are people out there that are going to not do that, and they're going to go off the deep end. But there has to be a responsibility on the behalf of the, the elected official to be better than that and not get down in the mud with some people. I mean, sometimes it's, it's just goading people into it. I get that. Some people are sincerely angry, and they, they lash out, and yeah, the language can get a little strong, and it's probably not the right thing to do. But the problem here is when elected officials decide, well, I'm going to go one better than that. I'm going to go and attack that individual or block that individual. I think that eventually this is going to go to a court case, and there's going to have to be a decision rendered on this. And i got to tell you, I, I think ultimately they're going to be telling elected officials, whether you be a city councillor, whether you be an MP or an MPP, that you have to watch your back on social media, and you can't block people. It's part of the job. When you put your name up and you run for office, you become a public figure. And as, as far as I can see, and I think David was just agreeing with us, when you go on social media, it's public. Even if it's a private account, it's public. And you have a responsibility as an elected official, a certain sense of decorum, you'd like to think, not to engage. Nothing, there's nothing rather engaging in a discussion and a debate. But you don't have to carry it on, and that's what a lot of these politicians are doing when they go on social media. Somebody will disagree with them, vehemently in some cases, and they have to get back into it. It's easy enough to say, okay, appreciate your opinion, but I'm off here now. That's it. And move on. But they've got to get, as, as David Fraser just said, there's always that propensity when you get into a debate on social media to have the last word. And sometimes it's better for an elected official and for somebody else, too, to just walk away. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, there is a, another uh, new wrinkle to business, and that's local business. And it was, of course, the legalization of cannabis, which happened uh, back in the middle of October. Well, uh, we know that right now, if you want to buy it legally in Ontario, you have to do it online. But eventually, there will be legal stores. They're going to grant licenses. How many? Where are they going to be? Uh, what are their hours of operation? Well, the BIAs are concerned about this, as well they should. Joining us to talk about this is Rachel Braithwaite, who is the executive director for the Barton Village BIA. Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Good to have be here. Well, this is an important issue, and, and you know we need to talk about the impact of uh, this, the, of business on a situation like this. And and I know that as you guys discussed at your meeting, I mean, this is a legal substance now, and eventually it's, it's going to be legal to own these shops if you get a proper license. But but you've got some legitimate questions here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the challenge we have is we're not getting the answers, and people are asking for us to say, do we opt in or opt out? But 
they're not giving the information we need in order to make an informed decision. So it is a bit of a challenge for sure. And the, the sand is running out of the hourglass here because you've only got a limited amount of time that, that meeting the city uh, to decide whether or not they want to opt in or opt out. I think it's uh, the third week of January. You have to say yay or nay. That's right, exactly. And, you know, there's some challenges because, you know, obviously we need to make an informed decision. And we want to know what regulations are being imposed by the province prior to making that decision. But those regulations still haven't been released. So it, it is a bit worrying. Well, because uh, let's face it, I know that some communities, Markham comes to mind, have already decided, for instance, in their case, to opt out and say, no, we don't want these things in our community. But, but how could they do that? Because they don't know any more about it than you do. It's true, but sometimes I, I, I can understand them opting out because maybe they want to see other municipalities that opt in to see how it's going and then choose later on to say, okay, now that the wrinkles are all ironed out, we'll opt in. So, you know, I understand why they might make that decision. Now, give me your experience with this. You've got, you've got some of these operations. They're technically illegal, but, I mean, you know, some of them are still been operating. We know that there have been a large number of these things that have shut down, but my understanding is there's still 40 or 50 of them still open, and some of them in your area. Uh, you've talked to some of them, I guess. What kind of reception do you get? Um, it varies, if I'm completely honest with you. So some are wonderful. Um, you know, they're, they're out there to do an, a legitimate business. Um, yes, it is illegal, but still they're, they're doing it for the, for the greater good, so to speak. And they know there's a demand out there and they're trying to fill, fulfill that supply. So those ones I really respect. There are some that unfortunately don't do it um, as respectfully, let's say, as I would have hoped. You know, they're the ones that typically hide what they're doing. They're not very responsive when you go to introduce yourself. And, and those ones are, are not my preferred type. Um, so I definitely, you know, we, we've got a mixture on our street. And to be honest with you, the ones that are that more, more respectful, um, you know, they care about the community they're in. They're trying to, to integrate in that community. Those have actually already closed because they know in order to actually apply to become a legal licensed store, you have to close. So um, they've already, most of those have already closed. So you, you would anticipate that those are the ones that are going to apply for licenses then? Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, that would be my hope, right? So, and that's one of my concerns, right? Is So what we found out recently is what's going to happen is a notice is going to be put up on a storefront, for example, saying, you know, there's been a request for this to be opened as a licensed cannabis dispensary. You have 15 days to um, voice your complaints or concerns. Um, but my concern is it's probably going to be a numbered company. So we aren't able to look at that company that's proposing to be there and at their, their past practices. You know, so that is a bit of a concern for me, um, for sure, because as I've said, there's some that have done it very respectfully and those are the ones that I would support. And there's some that haven't. And those are the ones that, that I would urge not to be supported, if you know what I mean. Rachel, what are you hearing from some of your other members in the BIA uh, about the, this? what is going to be a reality? I mean, this is going to happen at some point. Are they Absolutely. are they nervous about this? Uh, I know some people are just downright opposed to this, and, and you, know, you have to grant them their opinion. I get that. But at the same time, there's an inevitability to this. There is. And to be honest with you, I have a lot of mixture. So I have a lot of people that are very open to it. They see there's a need and uh, feel you know, let's fill that demand kind of thing. So they see it as a positive thing. There are others who are worried, and sometimes it's because of that lack of knowledge because we don't know currently the regulations. So that is a bit worrying, right? So mm -hmm. 
um, yeah, I think once more information is released, that will help put minds at ease for sure. I mean, I guess the ultimate, you know, suggestion here is, well, you know, if you knock on somebody's store that runs a variety store or, or some other specialty store down on Barton Street, would they be comfortable having a, sh- a shop like this next door to them? Exactly. And and that's one of my concerns, too, is that, for example, a legal dispensary opens beside another business and that business loses their clientele and they've been there for, you know, 20, 30 years, which some of our businesses have even longer and they close. That would be very heartbreaking to me um, to see that happen. So, you know, I one of my requests was get permission from neighboring businesses to, to have that there so that they're in support of it. Because you also don't want to go somewhere you're not wanted either, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, my hope would be that, you know, a, a dispensary would do the due diligence and go meet with the, the potential neighbors to see what the feeling is and to make sure it's a good fit for that community. But you can't, imp- there's no way to impose those regulations right now. So that's a bit of a challenge. Well, and, and obviously that's that's one of the things the BIA can do uh, for somebody who's going to open a new business is, is talk about things like that. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we got a blank sheet of paper here. We, we don't know how they're going to do this. Uh, how long are these mm-hmm. things, are they going to be a 24-hour operation? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, what kind of regulations are they going to impose on them? Absolutely. And that's the most worrying thing. You know, so they're asking us to make a decision by a certain date, but they haven't told us the rules or regulations they're going to enforce on them. And they're not letting us enforce any rules or regulations. So, you know, things like that are quite worrying for sure. Well, because it can have an impact on related businesses. And that's why I was asking, you know, how do your, your businesses, the existing businesses that are there feel about having these in here? Uh, and, and that can be a concern. I mean, years and years ago, uh, you know, there was a, a bylaw here in the city that said, for instance, gas stations couldn't stay open uh, after six o'clock at night because most businesses shut down and they didn't want that kind of activity. I, it took a long time to get rid of that, but it just shows that, you know, the, the, the feelings and, and the, the, uh, I guess the, the, the impact of this is going to have on other businesses do have to be a factor in related to how they're going to set up regulations here. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. And, and it's frustrating that the city, has no say on those regulations. That's what's worrying to me too, because I feel every city is slightly different. Um, and so, you know, different regulations might be needed, but the province isn't allowing that. Well, and are you getting any answers at all? I mean, I know that you've requested this. I know the city has. I know Ken Leenders, who's in charge of bylaw enforcement for the city, is trying to reach out. And uh, the Attorney General's office, I guess, who's in charge of this whole thing right now, just says, don't worry about it. Uh, these will all be out by the end of December, I guess. But that doesn't give you a whole lot of time. Oh, absolutely. And that's the challenge, right? And then we've also, it feels like we're not being asked for input either, right? Like, I, my hope would be that, I mean, I know the province can't ask everybody, but that they would take in feedback and they would have sent surveys out to say, you know, what what are your thoughts and what are your feelings, what regulations should be imposed, what shouldn't. But it feels like they're just, you know, behind closed doors making these decisions and their final decisions, and you got to live with it if you want it. So About the only one we've heard, and, and they haven't even carved this in stone, but they have indicated, yeah, they're probably going to accommodate this, is, is separation from school districts, uh, you yeah. know, radio separation, to say, well, you're not going to have one of those near a school. But again, even within that, uh, well, what's the radio separation going to be? Is it five blocks away, two blocks away? Is it 50 feet? We don't know. And, and, and obviously schools are concerned about this because they don't want the, these to be near playgrounds, et cetera, and, and I can understand mm-hmm. that. So we're really kind of, you know, shooting in the dark here. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, yes, yeah, schools are very important, but so are libraries and, you know, streets where we have full, 
uh, family-focused festivals, right? So how do you, you know, it, it, it is a bit of a worry when you really don't know what uh, the their regulations are going to be for sure. Well, I guess the most obvious one too is how many of these things are going to be allowed. My understanding is that they're not going to they're not going to put a hard and fast number that you know Hamilton, for instance, can only have X number of shops. Apparently, you can have as many as you want. So, technically, uh, theoretically, I mean, they could open up five of them in a row on Barton Street, for instance. And mm-hmm. you know, what do you do about that? Yeah, and and that's the challenge, right? There is no legislation or uh, no licensing even given to the city. I mean, if you look at payday lenders, they have uh, recently been granted for dual licensing from both the province and the city, which I think is is something that should happen as well for the dispensaries. But it it doesn't seem that that's happening. The, The city has requested that and they were turned down. It seems crazy to me. Well, and, and that's a great example uh, because we saw those things pop up like dandelions uh, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and they seem to be almost on every street corner. And, and I know the BIAs were very concerned about that because all of a sudden you were getting three or four of them, in, so for instance, on Concession Street or Barton Street or Ottawa Street, and it's somewhat problematic because, I mean, the other people that have been there for quite some time and are trying to do good business uh, get very concerned about the clientele, about the, you know the kind of business that goes on there. And boy, once they're up, it's very difficult to say, okay, we don't want them here anymore. Yeah, no, it's true. And and sometimes, if I'm honest with you, it's it's more my people need certain services, and I get that. And to be honest with you, the clientele um, I'm not too worried about for the dispensaries. My concern is more about that business owner and how they're going to integrate with the community and if they're going to be a benefit to that street and that community because that builds a strong community and that builds a strong BIA. Um, and so that's more my, my bigger concern. It, and it also leads the way, right? I mean, if it's uh, a business that's operating in a very respectful manner, their customers are going to be respectful. So, you know, it, it kind of leads into to that discussion. Rachel, how much sway does a BIA have about things like uh, property standards, things of that nature? I mean, not everybody on on Barton Street, for instance, or any other one of these areas, these business districts, is a member. Most are, thankfully, and and I think they all benefit as a result of that. But uh, mm-hmm. but every now and then you get a bad apple that uh, that doesn't sweep up or has a kind of a crappy looking storefront, etc., like that. Uh, and I know that you know there are city bylaws vis-a-vis property standards. But does the BIA have a little bit of sway there to determine uh, you know how shops are going to look? Um, not really to to say how shops are going to look, if I'm honest with you. But we have the ability because we're eyes on the street, feet on the street, to you know work with those business owners and help them improve their storefronts. And, and we've got grants and financial incentives through the city to improve them too. So there's lots of added benefits in a BIA in order to improve your storefront and the abilities to help you do that. Most BIAs, as included, we um, hire a beautification assistant as well. So yeah. they actually take on the responsibility of sweeping up those sidewalks. So a BIA tends to have uh, the ability to keep those streets a bit cleaner and and support the the property and business owners to improve the storefronts for sure. Yeah, and there are, as you mentioned, some municipal uh, programs available too for you know enhancements, uh, storefront enhancements, and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too is, is education, um, communication, mm. and education to to know what these businesses are all about and and who's actually going to operate these. And I, I I agree with you. I think probably ninety nine point nine percent of the people that open these shops are going to be very legitimate business folks, and they're in it because they think that there's a need there, and there certainly is. And it's a legal substance that they're selling, just like alcohol or anything else. It just has to be controlled. 
But then you have to ask yourself the question, okay, uh, what, what are the criteria for granting a license in the first place? And if you knew all that criteria, I think you'd have a lot more comfort level about the sorts of people that are going to be operating exactly. the businesses. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's knowledge. Knowledge is power, right? And we're not being given that knowledge in order to make an informed decision, which makes us worry. So, you know, I, I don't I think they're causing unnecessary worry because we shouldn't really. I mean, it's it's something that's in demand. So it's something that's going to be supplied no matter what. So it kind of makes sense to do it legitimately and in a way that can be somewhat controlled but right now we're worried because we're not being told how it's going to be controlled or what's going to be allowed and and i don't think that's needed it's it's very unfortunate the way it's being handled do you think they rushed through this i do and i think unfortunately it's also a case of lots of differing opinions which sometimes delays the process right Mm mm-hmm because you're not the first one that's brought that up. We've heard that from many circles. Not that this shouldn't be happening, but that you know you didn't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed before you did this. Not you, yeah. but I mean the government. Exactly. And, and there's other little things, too, that seem a little bit kind of crazy to me. You know, Like if you're opening a bar, if you're opening um, most stores, stuff like that, you need to get licensed through the city. And there's certain regulations from the city that are enforced by the city. Whereas with these legal cannabis stores, they're not going to be licensed through the city, so they're not really going to be regulated um, or enforced as much through the... Like, it, it's really kind of unfortunate to me that you're going to have to jump through way more hoops to open a bar or a restaurant than you are to open a dispensary, which will bring in a lot more money. So, you know, it's things like that that are really unfortunate and seem unfair to some of the other businesses as well. Well, as we said, uh, lots of questions, not enough answers at this stage. Rachel, I hope that you get some clarity on this, and hopefully this Mm -hmm. will work out. uh, As we mentioned, we've only got a few more weeks for the province to come through on this. Thanks so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Okay. Rachel Braithwaite, of course, Executive Director of the Barton Village BIA, uh, echoing a lot of the sentiments of other BIAs around the city that are very concerned about just what's going to be happening, by whom, and the impact it's going to have. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.